Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 135 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Toby's not always here. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. But I am. Oh, (laughs) Toby, we're so happy it's a Toby week. Yay, me too. I'm excited to be back on the pod. Toby, what's your update? What's the, you know, Tobe report? Um, where am I right now? I'm in New York, baby. Oh, uh, you the are? state that is. Yeah, I am. Surprise. No wonder no wonder I've been feeling on edge Turn all day. around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are on our way to Niagara Falls. Uh we're almost there. We're in New York in Andrew's backyard and um the big boys playground as I like to call it. That is what it's called. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And we're loving it. We're out in the middle of these creepy Blair Witch looking woods. Um, there's nobody around except for some people who are firing guns. So that's fun. <laughs> so if you hear gunshots in the background, that's what's happening. Wow. All right. Don't worry. I'm out there too, waiting. Yeah, we're experiencing a lot more uh, coldness on this leg of the trip. No way. Is that normal? Uh, versus being in the desert. Yeah. Being in the desert and it being like, you know, summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very cold, um, but it just makes the camper cozier. Uh, that's that's all we find. And our cat Arnold is with us now and he is a lap seeker. And so we use him for heat and he uses us for heat. And it's great. Tell us about having a cat in an RV. You know, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> um, he uh, he doesn't love it when we're driving. But what he's done is if you are familiar with, you know, what a camper looks like, we have like an over the truck cab bunk and he just goes up there and like finds a real cozy little nook and just hunkers down and <laughs> hangs out. Uh-huh. And for a little bit, it was like hunkering, like, oh, my God, the the bombs are coming. But now it's like, eh, I'm hunkered and I don't prefer this moving around, but it's fine. But now, like the moment we get parked, he jumps down and we have like a little curtain that separates the bunk from the main area of the camper. Mm-hmm. And he'll like pop out of the curtain like the family opera. It's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Dylan and I have done two cross-country road trips, one with a cat, and Mm -hmm. my cat, Busby Berkeley, RIP. He didn't die on the trip. You should probably clarify that. Sorry. Yeah, no, that was... No, he had a long life after this trip. Yeah, like 10 years after that. Don't worry about it. But on the trip, like, we were really worried about it. And we were like, oh, he's probably going to have a hard time. He's going to be scared. Instead, he just loved it. I have to drive some cats in a car tomorrow. Guys... I think we might be experts in cat driving. Yeah, seriously. And what does that say about <laughs> us? Probably more so than any other podcast. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I was going to say, another thing you can rely on the To Read List podcast for, how to transport your cat in literally any vehicle. What do you trust Joe Rogan's advice about this? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of shameful things, I have some shame. <gasps> Whoa. Hey, great transition, Toby. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as you may or may not remember Pejo's, um, I was briefly in Los Angeles. And then for a while, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area where my family lives. Um, And during the brief day that Louise and I were together in that area, we visited another famous bookstore, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. I love that place. Um, For those of you who don't know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, someone will know the facts better than me probably. But um, it's a quite old bookstore that has some pretty impressive history. I believe Allen Ginsberg used to hang out there, a bunch of beat poets back in the 60s. Very happening place um, and is still kind of like a, a literary light in the in the city today. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you said that well. So I got two books of shame uh, while I was there. I uh, Both short story collections. I got one called Bezor and Other Unsettling Stories by Guadalupe Nettle because it looks really cool. It's a really thin, like ultra thin volume of short stories. I've already read it. Five stars. They are like creepy stories. They're really inappropriate. So I don't even think I can describe them on the podcast. Okay. Is it like the thing in, from Harry Potter that comes out of the stomach of a goat that can cure all poisons. That's exactly right. That's based on like a real thing that that people in certain uh, areas of the world believe. That is actually a story that I can describe. Thank you, Andrew, for reminding me. That's the biggest story of the bunch. Um, It's about a woman who has a kind of tick where she eats her own hair and It continues for her whole life, and her whole life gets really complicated. It's really good. So that's five stars. What would Bailey say about that? Like, oh, it's shame, but I'm not ashamed at all, and how dare you accuse me, and (laughs) I should get a medal as well. Good boy list. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, And I also got another shame, which I haven't finished yet, which is The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2021. Dylan loves those books. I was going to say, no surprise here that Dylan is giving big ups to the Best American series ever since I've known him in, like, middle school. 
he's been trying to give me best American collections. If you're not familiar, it's a series that comes out every year. They do all the genres like best American mystery stories, best American short stories in general. Um, and this is a fun collection. I'm working my way through it with my wife. We may or may not be reading them out loud to each other at night in the camper. It's Ooh. fun. NSFW. <laughs> Sorry, guys. TMI. TMI pages. Maybe we've said this on the podcast before, but when Dylan and I moved in together, we noticed that we each had Best American short story collections and we had them from different years. So now they're all together on one shelf. So the collection is complete. Andrew, would you like to take this or should I? (laughs) Nerd. Nerd. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I was really worried we weren't going to say the same thing, but we did. (laughs) Yep. We got it. Um, I have a little bit of shame. Well, that's shocking. Color me. <laughs> Wait, you do? <laughs> this is very rude. Okay. So I got an email from Daddy Goodreads who said that. Oh, there's don't a- <laughs> care for that. <laughs> it was like, do you like horror books? Here's a list of oh, no. the best horror books. And I was like, yes, I do. And it was an interview with some horror writers like Grady Hendrix and Stephen Graham Jones and others. And they were recommending all kinds of horror books. So I added maybe like 20 to my theoretical to read pile. One of them is called Summer Suns. And it's a Southern Gothic horror starring a young gay man in the South. And it sounded really good. And then I went on my little walk. I've been playing the new Pikmin game. And on my walk, I pass a little free library, open it, guess what's in there? Summer Suns, uh, which I had uh. just added to the list. That's crazy, guys. It's a 2021 book. Is this this like legendary little free library that you keep talking about where it's like every new book is in there and you just have to scoop them? Yes, which is in stark contrast to the other one. Have you tried climbing into it and making sure it doesn't lead to like the New York Public Library or something magical like that? Guys, confession. When I first heard the term like in middle school, I thought Southern Gothic meant just like goths, like the cure and everything, and that they just lived in the South. Show me, show me how you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think, I don't know, but is this shame? Because it's kind of like wish fulfillment, so... Yes, it's shame. Mm, All right. It's shame. Andrew, any shame? Uh, No, no shame. Not this week. But I do feel obligated to tell you all that I'm extremely tired. Listeners, if I stop making sense during this episode, uh, my work week was way crazier than I was expecting it to be. Uh, We're recording kind of late. And I just want to put that out there, not because I think I'll say anything I regret, but because I might, or at least say something that doesn't make any sense. I hope So no shame, but apologizing for future shame. Fair enough. I think Loopy Andrew is most fun, Andrew. Um, oh, I did do a little bit of extra credit really quickly. I finished uh, oh, Ruin, no. Ruin and Rising, the third of in the um, Grishaverse uh, Shadow and Bone, oh. which I, I really liked the third one. I liked it better than the second one. And I've started Six of Crows and I'm into it. So Six out of five? Six out of five. Six Crows. <laughs> I enjoyed Six of Crows. I will say I will chime in um, with actually some backup extra credit. Um, I just finished Lemony Snicket's uh, Poison for Breakfast. I really enjoyed that. I think I ended up giving it four stars. And I want to give a like reverse shout out that I forgot to say in the last episode I was on. And also a shame to Dylan for Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Uh, that is a five star book. I enjoyed it so, so much. Yeah. I want to like jo- I want to join Reese's Book Club. Yeah. Holy moly. It's so good. And Dylan, what are you talking about? Four stars, get out of here. That's all I have to say. If only there was a podcast episode that explained my thinking on it. (laughs) Yeah, and it's wrong. But I can't go into that because that's not my review of the book now. Reverse shout out. I love it. Speaking of your review of a book. Yeah, I was going to say. So yeah, Toby, if you want to revisit that podcast at any time, you can. Like you might revisit another place. Toby, did you read a book this week? Yes, I did. Um, I read Bride's Head Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. Wah, wah. Well, Toby, first off, do I have to have read Bride's Head in order to get it? Of course. You need to know the lore. I think we need to go back and acknowledge Andrew saying wah, wah, which was very good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's my logline. In Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, Charles Ryder, an officer stationed on the home front in World War II Britain, reflects on the halcyon days of his youth as a privileged student at Oxford and his involvement in the affairs of a grand Catholic family, the summer of love he spent at their family home, Brideshead, and the loss of the way of life of the aristocracy as the century moves forward. 
Hmm. Sounds very British rich. Sounds very much like the research I did about Evelyn Waugh. <laughs> yeah, it may or may not be based on uh, who he was. I don't know. I can't say. I did. Uh, I was spurred to do a little bit of my own research. All right. Basically, this is the story of Ryder, Charles Ryder. Um, he uses the framing device of kind of looking back. You know, he's with the army, but they're on the home front. And they're, you know, there's that kind of part of World War II where the, the British kind of... Uh, commissioned all of these big country estates. I think it happens in Downton Abbey as well. Like they're like, oh, the army needs this to put soldiers or whatever. So he's in charge of taking charge of this manor house, um, which he spent a lot of time in as a a young man. And so that's the kind of framing device, which is kind of necessary. Not really. I don't know. It doesn't. It's barely in the book at all. But that's the framing device. But the huge majority of the story takes place in the in the distant past um, from when he was a very young man in his first days at Oxford and then moving forward through his time in Oxford. Oxford, and then, uh, you know, the time after that. Uh, he goes to Oxford, Charles Ryder. Uh, he meets a kind of group of interesting young men there, uh, because at this time, Oxford is men only. And um, a chief among them is this man, uh, Sebastian Marchmain. He belongs to this big Catholic family that has a gigantic manor house. They have, you know, a million pounds socked away, the whole deal. Very rich, very aristocratic. And he gets involved with him uh, in a manner of different ways and involved with his family eventually. So that is, you know, a very very bare bones summary of the plot. There's not much more than that besides you see all these relationships play out over the intervening years. I could tell you more about the plot, but there's actually quite a lot of twists and turns and personal drama, and I don't want to spoil any of it because um, I want everyone to read this book. I really enjoyed it. Oh, you did? That really surprises me, actually. Based on my research about Evelyn Waugh, I'm surprised you enjoyed this book. It's a complicated book. But first, before I go into my elves and my orcs and more details, I want to pull out um, one one detail that I think we could all talk about that is super relatable. You know, when you're reading books that are older, this was published in the 50s, sometimes it can be hard to ground yourself in the story. But early on in his time in Oxford, he kind of is talking about how like what a rube he was or kind of he's saying how basic he was <laughs> back in his freshman year. And what he mentions is he's like, oh, I'm so ashamed to think of all the decorations I put up in my dorm room, especially. But, you know, for him, it's like this lovely set of rooms at Oxford. But he's like, oh, I can't believe I had a print of Van goes sunflowers how basic <laughs> and uh that that really rang true to me as a person who had a Jimi hendrix poster that i think maybe every third dude i knew had in the room did you have a scarface poster i did not have a scarface poster but i had this Jimi hendrix poster i don't know if any of our listeners will be familiar with this but it had kind of a swirly psychedelic background mm. and he's kind of there with his head tilted back he's kind of drawn in like a arty like almost cartoonish way but i wanted to ask Ask my fellow co-hosts if you guys had any shameful basic posters in your dorm rooms. I am pretty sure I might have had a print of Robert Duano's The Kiss, you know, the photograph. Oh, which okay. is, you know, a staple of every girl's dorm room. And I might have had a print of Roberto Rodriguez's Sin City, which is a staple of every <laughs> oh. college film student. <laughs> Sin City, classic, classic, Andrew. Well, my roommate had that picture of the the women painted like the albums from from uh, Pink Floyd. Oh. I know exactly what you mean. The ones with their butts out. <laughs> my, my roommate had that. The well, Bailey actually gave me a lot of my college decorations, so I had a big poster of Werner Herzog. Oh yeah, um, that was given to me for, by Bailey. That's kind of cool, though. You're welcome. More embarrassing was the fact that I had a poster in my room growing up of Wimbledon, the movie starring Paul Bettany and. <laughs> yeah. Chris Kirsten Dunst because it was the only movie I recognized at a at a movie store that, or a movie rental place where they sold movie posters. <laughs> wow. Um so I'm going to jump into my elves because I'm going to cover kind of what the book's about a little bit more in them. Probably because Dylan talked some smack when he chose it for me. Like, oh, here it comes. A Middlemarch clone. It's going to be a boring English novel about the aristocracy. Uh, I was not looking forward to reading it. And it's kind of on me because I put this on my list just kind of, you know, it's on a list of very good books and I it's aspirational and yeah, I want to check it out. So I was extremely pleased to find out that it's a absolutely fascinating uh, queer novel, uh, which is really surprising because you don't see it coming. Uh, and it seems to stem from like the little research that I've done here and there. I don't want to step on Andrew's toes, but basically in the book and seemingly in real life. At this time in Oxford, it was not uncommon at all for there to be a kind of boys will be boys attitude about same-sex relationships at 
Oxford, where many young men and Evelyn Waugh and Charles Ryder uh, kind of like, you know, they would probably term it go through a phase mm. where they have an intense relationship with uh, a classmate. And that's what happens in this book. And it's it's very interesting because, you know, it's published in the 50s. So there is nothing explicit, nothing explicit at all. But I mean, if you know, it's, it's not explicit, but it's funny to me that I think there was some debate for some time, like, oh, are they in a romantic relationship or are they just, you know, depicted as very close male friends. I think reading it from a modern lens, you're like, oh, no, those two guys, they are hooking up. They're having a great time. And it's really fascinating to see this, you know, this relationship depicted as completely normal, completely loving. There's some dysfunctional aspects to it, for sure. But in the context of how much affection and love he has for Sebastian, it's really touching and really well drawn. And then kind of the he doesn't shy away from the dangers of the day. There is a um, character in the book called Anthony Blanche, who is more out um, than Charles Ryder is. He is a he is a gay man who who does not kind of turn his back on his behavior in, in university and lives his life kind of out of the closet. And early in the book, he has a very like nod, nod, wink, wink conversation with Charles where he's basically like, I can see that you're bi and I bet you're going to like turn your back on us. It's it's just very, oh, it's very complicated and very well drawn and fascinating to read from this era in history. And I really, really loved that aspect of the story. Didn't expect it. That's cool. I My only experience with this book is that I saw the film adaptation that came out in like 2008. And all I remember about that movie is that they were in love. <laughs> and yeah. end of that's all I remember. And like, you know, a pretty house. So <laughs> I, yeah. it's, it's kind of like I'm revisiting the story through your review. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is definitely the most interesting part of the book. I and and Sebastian, his character, who he is, and his kind of. Uh, I will just tease it by saying his sad fate. Um, it was definitely my my focus of the book. And it's funny that you mentioned the uh, recent adaptation. Apparently, there was a very well received 1981 BBC series starring Jeremy Irons uh, that did this book uh, pretty well. And the audiobook that I read was narrated by uh, Jeremy Irons, and he killed it. It was one of the most incredible audiobook performances I think I've ever heard. So if you guys want to check it out, check out that audiobook. Gotta love Jeremy. Irons. So moving along in my elves, it's laugh out loud funny. It like you don't expect it to be, but it is stupid, stupid funny at parts, uh, kind of satirical and just very, very funny. The prose overall is nuts. Um, really, it might not be to everyone's taste, but I really like it. And I have a taste for you here. And this is how you know I don't always do quotes from books, but I have one for you here. And this is how you know I really like the book. Here we go. This is a very long sentence, by the way. But I was in search of love in those days, and I went full of curiosity and the faint, unrecognized apprehension that here, at last, I should find that low door in the wall, which others I knew had found before me, which had opened on an enclosed and enchanted garden, which was somewhere, not overlooked by any window, in the heart of that gray city. Lovely description. Okay, and my last elf is that the the kind of drama as Charles gets pulled into Sebastian's family and gets to know all of them um, is truly engrossing. You really do, uh, you're guessing at our characters good people or bad people, or are they being presented in a way that we understand um, or can trust? And it's just, you know, an engaging family drama that pulls you through most of the book. And, and I really, I, again, I expected this to be kind of a slog and I flew through most of it. So though, those are my elves. Awesome. Did you have any orcs? I do have a few orcs. Um, I thought it, this is one of those books. It's so frustrating. I'm sure you guys can relate to this. You're like, oh, book, you're doing so good. You're headed for five stars. Just don't blow it at the end. And then, uh-oh. So I will say uh, in my orcs, I've mentioned before, Sebastian's storyline is by far the most interesting to me. And I think to many modern readers, it would be the most interesting. And it kind of trails off, um, probably at about the 70% mark into the book um you know sad things happen to him and he sort of fades into the background um and um and charles becomes involved with a woman um and things turn their fo 
focus from a kind of interesting investigation into art and what it's like to be queer in those times and many other interesting questions to Catholicism. What does it mean to be Catholic? And is it good to be Catholic? And should everybody be Catholic or should nobody be Catholic? Um, which was a, a subject that I was slightly less interested in. Mm. Um, and as the book moves on towards its finish, it becomes exclusively concerned with that. Hmm, that's disappointing. Hmm, hmm. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens in Wa's life. I just don't know what's going to happen. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, there's that. But it's also a super duper duper classist in a way that is like almost hilariously unapologetic. Um, a lot of the book is about how uh, Ryder and I think clearly was very sad that these great aristocratic families are kind of on the way out as he sees it, especially with the coming of World War II. Um, he's constantly talking about how these old country homes are being demolished to make ways for shopping centers and how the commoners, you know, don't have as much worth in living basically there's a there's a young man in his army unit that he looks down on as kind of like the common type of new man and he kind of just talks about how much of an idiot he is and how sad he is to see that the country is going the way of this young man um so there's just kind of a lot of i just kind of found myself being like okay boomer a lot <laughs> to him. Uh, and it, it was, um, you know, I don't think that this main character is supposed to be very likable. He does some really, really terrible things. Um, but, you know, the the overall message that I think Wa thought was a good thing to say is that, yes, I think it is a good idea to have these disproportionately rich people doing absolutely nothing um, in these gigantic houses because they get to live beautiful lives and they deserve to. So that's a little bit distancing. But uh yeah, overall, I would say, honestly, even though, you know, it's hard to do the orc second because it always kind of leaves a taste in my mouth like I've talked a bunch of trash about the book. But really, um, I enjoyed it a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, there's a lot to bring you through. The prose I really enjoyed. The storyline is fascinating. It's funny, funny, funny. So, you know, in the end, I gave it four stars. Nice. Wah, 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 wah. Wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. Andrew, do you have any facts? Wah, 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 wah. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I have facts. <laughs> yeah, I think he's I think he's not a very nice person. <laughs> oh, no. Evelyn Waugh was born Arthur Evelyn St. John Waugh on October 28th, 1903 to a well-off family in London. His father ran a publishing house called Chapman and Hall, who most significantly were Charles Dickens's chief publishers. I wonder how he gets published later. <laughs> From a young age, Evelyn showed an interest in writing and also the military. He was educated at a lot of fine schools, including places called Heath Mount Preparatory and Lansing College. Uh, Evelyn um, excelled at Lansing College and went on to attend Oxford, where he decided it was time to party. <laughs> mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. article I read described it as he assumed getting his scholarship was all he needed to do, and he was gonna just live off of that and like only do the bare minimum to stay in school. So he's like, I'm in Oxford, I'm gonna just like not get kicked out. I'm not gonna do any more than that academically. Mm-hmm. And he studied just enough to pass. He spent his time drinking, carousing, and making influential friends. I don't know if you guys have heard this term before, um, but there is a, a class of young people in this time in the 20th century called the Bright Young Things. There's a movie called Bright Young Things. Um, he became friends with all these bright young things. Um, he was sort of living all around them. He had uh, love affairs with a lot of the men in, involved in that group, including one with Hugh Ligon, uh, who inspired the character of Lord Sebastian in Brideshead mm -hmm. Revisited. Okay. So first hint that this is maybe slightly autobiographical right there. <laughs> of many. Yes. Um, he made a lot of connections with influential people. That's a big part of his life. He has like a huge fancy friend group his entire life. And this is just a fun fact before we move on from his studies. Uh, his neglect of his studies led to a feud with his tutor, uh, a man named CRMF Crutwell. And Evelyn didn't forget it because he used the name Crutwell uh, for a bunch <laughs> of crappy characters in a lot of his books. Ooh, I love oh, wow. that. So it's just like, <laughs> I didn't do my work. And I am mad at you for being mad at me for not yeah, doing my geez. work. So I'm going to smear your name. You know, I, I would never support not doing homework because, you know, me, big nerd. However, <laughs> I fully support naming characters after your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Bailey is torn on this issue. 
He left Oxford without receiving a degree. <gasps> he uh, he pursued writing and tried to make ends meet with teaching posts. It wasn't really going well. There was this moment where he thought he had a book that was about to be published and also thought he was going to get a job. And then so he quit his teaching job. And then both of those things fell through. Ooh. So it was like a bunch of that. Um, but eventually he did, he did write and publish his first work, a biography of the poet and painter Dante Rossetti, um, which was published by his father's publishing house. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a coincidence or not. Wah, wah. Uh, and then shortly after he followed his first novel, which was called Decline and Fall. Around this time, he fell in love with someone whose name was Evelyn Gardner. I don't know if it was also pronounced Evelyn, uh, but he married her in 1928. Apparently, their friend group called them Hevelyn and Shevelyn. Love it. <laughs> okay, I kind of love that. <laughs> That's yeah, great. No, there's some things to like here. I mean, just... no wonder they were called the Bright Young Things. That's a great couple's name. <laughs> yeah. So Decline and Fall was well-reviewed and garnered him enough like momentum to keep writing, um, to ensure future work. The first marriage, however, didn't last, and he divorced Evelyn or Shevelyn after an affair came to light. His second novel, Vile Bodies, which was a, a satire of the Bright Young Things, earned him commercial success to go along with his critical praise. And that basically gave him a blank check to do a lot of travel writing uh, and articles for different public applications, et cetera, et cetera. Now here, here's another thing I just don't know if Bright said Revisited is autobiographical because Waugh converted to Catholicism after his first marriage fell apart and mm. initially had that marriage annulled so that he could remarry. Uh, and this became central to his life. He was so devout that he, like, he's, this is a big thing later on, he strongly objected to the Second Vatican Council because he really, really did not want them to switch the mass to English. What? He wanted to stay in Latin. He really wanted to stay in Latin. His funeral was hell? in Latin. At Westminster. I guess if he paid all that money to go to Oxford to learn Latin, like he's probably really holding on to that. He studied modern history at Oxford. <laughs> So that is definitely something he was concerned with. And a lot of his later work either deal with people directly involved in Catholicism, like saints or different uh, thinkers, or involve the themes like in Pride Set Revisited. Despite him being in his late 30s and early 40s when it happened, he entered the military in World War II, um, even though it was pretty pretty late in the game. And he served in a number of different capacities. And the main reason for this was that he was so grumpy and so bad at being like a team player <laughs> that they kept moving him around. But he was like an established guy who was kind of famous. So they kept like finding him... He like kept kind of failing up or like at least failing parallelly. <laughs> Moving on. This is something I didn't know you could do, but during the war, he had an idea for a novel. And so he applied to take off time from the war so he could write it. What? Again, <laughs> again during the war. And more remarkably, that time off was granted. And even more remarkably than that, he got an extension on his time off <laughs> to keep writing the book. Guys, guys, they hated him. They hated him. <laughs> I have an idea for a novel. It's called How to Shoot People Good in 12 Steps. Can I write it over a year? Very similarly, actually, the book that he wrote during this time was called Brides Had Revisited. Uh, and weirdly enough, he was able to come back after that. And he held pretty high positions after that, including like directly liaising with the future prime minister slash dictator of Yugoslavia. That is, well, not the dictatorship is not hilarious, but it is hilarious that he returned to the army because the beginning of the book is him just kind of or the main character musing on how he's fallen out of love with the army and how much he hates being in it and how incompetent he thinks everyone is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that does not surprise me. Uh, we're going to wrap this up quick because this has been long and I wanted to focus on the stuff that sort of inspired Brideshead Revisited during this research because there is so much more we could go into. Uh, He married his second wife, Laura Herbert, in 1937, so before all this happened, and uh, they would go on to have seven children. He had success, earned money, lost money, had a mental breakdown due to drug and alcohol abuse, uh, embarrassed himself publicly by like being really combative during public interviews, um, avoided taxes by setting up a fund called Save the Children, which was actually like a trust fund for his children. (laughs) I mean, he is a child of somebody, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which he siphoned his money through like he like would just put his advances directly into save the children fund oh my uh, to try to avoid paying taxes on it he got caught doing that complained about church reform as i said and eventually he died um he published a lot of work along the way and received much recognition though even like during his lifetime his popularity started to wane um he like like got sort of diminishing returns on his work even while he was still alive can you just imagine real quick if someone was going around the office and they were like do you want to donate to save my children like, sorry, say that again? You said save, save my children. The yes, children? save the children. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like save the children. <laughs> yeah. He had the reputation of being grumpy and rude. But as I said earlier, he did cultivate lifelong friendships with many, many people who all like swore by him being a wonderful and charitable dude. Well, yeah, he had ran a charity. He's very charitable. <laughs> 
True. Uh, so people like sort of the people who loved him were like, his grumpiness is a performance. Everyone else is like, he's just grumpy and mean. What could the truth be? Uh, he also, on a more serious note, held racist and anti-Semitic views and also, as Toby suggests, incredibly classist views. Well, that was a given. <laughs> yeah. And he had a lot to say about politics despite proudly never voting. Ugh. <laughs> um, Ugh. The best kind of political mind. He's one of those like both sides are the same people. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. He died of heart failure in 1966, age 62. And and that's Evelyn Waugh for you. There's so much more. He's a very complicated person. I think there's, as, as Toby suggests, there's a lot of sides of him that are good and a lot of things that are unsavory. And I did not enjoy researching him. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Good job. That was Great a tough facts, one. Andrew. You did it. Thank you. So that's Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. Four stars. Four stars. So Bailey, I heard you um, gave stars to a book that you also read. What was that? (laughs) I love it. That's great, Andrew. Five stars for that transition. We did such great transitions earlier. That's just a really hard one to get. (laughs) Because you you obviously read a book, Bailey. I did. I read a book called Dear Child by Romy Hausman. Ooh. Ooh. Child, child. Um, This one I'm pretty sure I added to my shelf um, or to my to-read list because it was another recommended book at the year-end like spooky book list. Um, And so I went for it. Um, Dear Child is translated from the German, I think. Yes, Andrew? Uh, Yeah, it is. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, um, translated from the German and it's a thriller that follows multiple points of view. They're all told in the first person and it follows the story of well, okay, it's, it's one of those books that it's really hard to say anything without spoiling it. So I'm just going to give you yeah. the setup. Um, so Set me up. We open in like a hospital and there's a little girl. Her name is Hannah. We come to find out that she is 13, but she talks like she's maybe five. Uh-oh. Hannah is describing how she and her mother ended up in the hospital. And as Hannah's talking, you're realizing that something is not right. The, the ways that she's describing things, maybe Hannah doesn't have the best perspective uh, or the correct perspective. Then we cut to Lena, her mother, um, and Lena is in the hospital and she is remembering what's happening and we're coming to realize that maybe Lena is not Lena. That's all I can say. What? Hmm. All right. So very clear, no mystery. But then there's a third character who is Matthias, who's the father of Lena, and he is very excited that Lena has returned because Lena has been missing for 13 years. What? When she shows up at the hospital. But when he meets Lena, he says that's not Lena. So that's the setup. I know that that's confusing, but basically it's about it's about a woman who was kidnapped, who had a child while she was kidnapped. They end up at the hospital, but as it progresses, nothing is what it seems. Or is it? <laughs> or isn't it? We don't know, Bailey. You can't yeah, ask I don't us. Know. <laughs> it very rarely is in a mystery that it ends with like, oh, it is all at that it seemed. <laughs> And that was it. That's the ultimate twist is that it's all as it seems on the surface. (laughs) Okay, first of all, this book on the cover is described as Room Meets Gone Girl. And it is that. As an author, that is like, that would be like the thing you wanted the most to be on (laughs) on your book cover, right? A hundred percent. And Pedro's will know Room by Emma Donahue, one of my favorite books. Yeah. Um, It's Harry Potter meets the Bible. So the parts with Hannah are right out of room. If you remember room, you know, it's the perspective of Jack, who is a five-year-old boy who was raised only within this one room because his mother was kidnapped and he was born out of that horrible, you know, assault. That The Hannah stuff is very similar to that with the difference, main difference being that Hannah is older and Hannah is, some people think that she might be on the autism spectrum. It's either that or she just has a completely different way of looking at the world because of where she was raised, which is within this one cabin in the middle of the woods, but her thinking is much more matter of fact. I'm going to give a quote here so you can get a sense. So this is a conversation between Hannah and a nurse. Um, She's talking about Jonathan, who is her little brother, um, who had to, quote, stay in the cabin to clean up the carpet. Uh uh Okay. I'm not sure Jonathan would like it here, I say. I think he'd start trembling if he had to be here. But you're brave and you're not trembling. Yes, that's true, I say. But maybe I'm just more courageous than Jonathan because I'm older, a bit smarter, or both. He was much more terrified than me by the blood, too. And by the noise. What noise? 
Well, where do you think the bad stains on the carpet came from? Sister Ruth looks as if she's thinking, but I now know that she's not particularly good at this. Like if you drop a watermelon on the floor, I say, to spare her more embarrassment. What it sounds like when you bash someone's head in with something. Bam, I say in my lion's voice, speaking normally again, I add. And afterward, it's very quiet for a while. So, Yikes. yeah, so Hannah experiences horrific things, but she justifies all of it and she thinks all of it is normal to the point where she's like preaching it. So, yes, so that part is really well done. However, it's very similar to Room. I have two main orcs. I'll spoil them right now. One of them is that this is basically Room. And <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is funny because I think you said that was your fear when you this book got picked. Well, yes. And but like there's there's a lot more twists and we start outside of the room versus starting in the room. And it's one of those. It, it feels like a really good TV show where because you're switching perspective you'll leave every very short chapter on this really intense cliffhanger and then you'll start the next one and by the time you finish that one you've forgotten about the other cliffhanger and then you switch back and you're like oh yeah we're in this really tense place so it's you know it's like a tv show when you switch between perspectives so the perspective from hannah is really well done it's reads a lot like this very unique perspective, which is fun to follow. Mm. And another elf is that the plot is really well done. It's really twisty. And so all the time you're catching up with twists and turns and getting excited to get reveals. And none of the characters are reliable. So they say things that are crazy or disturbing. And it may or may not be true. And as you keep reading, you figure out what's true and what's not. And, you know, it's one of those thrillers that you can't put down. These are all great things. Mm. These are all elves. I would really recommend it to people that enjoyed Room or Gone Girl. However, my main orcs are that it's very similar to Room. Um, And I think this poor author will probably suffer from all of these comparisons. Mm. You can't really judge a book by its cover, but if the cover looks exactly like the cover of another book, then it's tough. And it's the same concept in a way. Yeah. Um, So yeah, so that, it just keeps it from being five stars just because it's just doesn't feel as unique. And it's, maybe she had the idea before Emma Donahue. I don't know. Um, Bailey, I have a, I have a question for you. Like I, I particularly like, I'm trying to think of other examples, but I, I really like the book, The Magicians by Lev Grossman, Mm -hmm. um, which I see people give it a lot of flack because they're basically, they, people say, oh, it's just Harry Potter in college, or it's just dark Narnia. And I think that the author has been very straightforward in saying, yeah, I felt like there were ideas in both of those universes that I could take and develop further. You know, he's not ashamed of saying like, yeah, this is directly inspired in part by these things. So does this book feel to you like this author would say, yeah, absolutely, like room, there were other things to explore in room, or is it kind of like a knockoff? That could be the case. It definitely feels like there's more to it. It goes further than mm-hmm. Room does. Um, and it's more disturbing after leave after the leaving of the room, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, so it's possible, but I don't know. I think it's kind of like, what if Room, but the kid is more disturbing? Yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not not cool. And like, you know what I mean, Paige. I'm sold. I'd greenlight that movie. <laughs> well, no, I, I know exactly what you mean, because that's why I picked it up, because I like these disturbing mm-hmm. types of books. So these are all good things, all reasons to read it. But again, the four stars, because of the room similarity, and this is a stupid thing, but because in the translation, I feel like they don't nail the translation. There's sometimes they'll say things where it's just the wrong word word like instead of Uh. like like she brings um the little girl in to see her mom at the at the hospital and she says don't be horrified and it's like wouldn't it be like don't be scared like it's like just little little off things that just remind that takes you out of the rhythm of it but that's all to say that this is a very solid thriller i read it really quickly i would recommend it if you're looking for a thriller for that thriller loving person on your list for the holidays dear child four stars nice Andrew, dish the facts. Yeah, I got facts. I got so many facts. She's definitely not super reclusive. (laughs) She definitely doesn't mostly give interviews in German, if giving them at all. Um, All right. So I do have some facts. Real talk, this is probably the least I've ever been able to find on an author. So this, I don't usually do this, but this is directly her Romy Hausman's um, bio on Goodreads. Rami Hausman was born in the former GDR, which is Eastern 
Germany, East Germany, in 1981. At the age of 24, she became chief editor at a film production company in Munich. Since the birth of her son, Romy has been working as a freelancer in TV. Dear Child is her thriller debut, and her second mind-bending thriller, Sleepless, it publishes in 2021. She lives with her family in a remote house in the woods mm. near Stuttgart. Oh. All right. Her bio on Macmillan, the English distributors of this, just says she lives in a house outside of the, in the woods outside of Stuttgart. <laughs> All right. And that she was born in the GDR, the former GDR. Um, so here's what I did to find facts on, 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 on Mrs. Houseman. Basically, she gives very few interviews. And the ones that I found are like on websites that look like they were built in like 1999 with the amount of clip art that's on them. <laughs> and they're super spoilery and super like analytical about the text of Dear Child. So I, I kind of had to throw those out. Um, the rest of them were in German. And I don't trust just like the, the, the Google Translate to run across what she's doing. So what I did find was a, a YouTube video for something called the Harrogate Festival, um, in which she, it's a very highly produced video of her driving from a city to a cabin <laughs> out in the woods. In, in, Stutt in, Stutt in Stuttgart? And, and speaking to directly to the camera in German, but they provide While subtitles that are very clearly, she's not driving, she's being driven. Oh, okay. And then she goes out and walks into this cabin in the woods and the whole time is like telling her like her, her ethos on writing and a little bit about herself. And the wow. festival put it out in such a produced way that I feel confident in the translation. I then transcribe that for you here. <laughs> Andrew, I just wow. want to say like big props, you know, you yeah. you did the research. <laughs> So I'm going to read verbatim what she wrote on this Harrogate Festival video, or what she says directly to the camera during this Harrogate family, uh, Festival video. My name is Romy Hausman, and I'm the author of Dear Child. I was born in the GDR, where daily life was all about borders and limitations. This is funny, but this is a serious point. I live, I live in a house outside. Uh, kind of. I was born in the GDR, where daily life was all about borders and limitations. And this made me think about the meanings of freedom. Already as a child, I did not understand how a system could dictate to a person uh, what to buy at shops, where and when to go on holidays, and which profession to choose. When I was six, I had no idea what cornflakes were, but I knew exactly what the Stasi was. I know about real borders because as a child, I lived with them every day. As a grown-up, I sometimes struggle to understand why some people seem to be stuck within self-imposed limits, why they lose belief in their chances. For me, freedom means extending the limits of my mind, to challenge those limitations, to stand up for myself and my opinions, to do what I really feel passionate about. At 19, I went to work for a TV company. I wanted to tell stories and work with people. I think the fact that I'm an author today has a lot to do with this. Over the years, I had been witness to so many personal stories that in the end, I didn't know what to do with these. Thus, writing became my personal outlet. I realized that people are fundamentally quite similar in their emotions. There are two essential feelings that make us tick, love and fear. And that's what my stories are about. They are about real people, people like you and me who are thrown into extreme situations and simply try to pull through. Ideally, the boundaries between character and reader are dissolved. I don't want to provoke disgust rather make my readers reflect the situation at this point she's in the cabin they should <laughs> critical context yeah, yeah they should ask themselves how they would feel and react in similar situations i hope this is exactly what my readers find in my books and that in the end my stories are more than just entertainment all right and then she, at that point she's drinking a cup of tea <laughs> at that point she goes to the bathroom <laughs> Uh, her second novel, Sleepless, came out in Germany in 2020 and then in its English translation in 2021. And a third book called Perfect Day is slated for 2022. I assume that means the German release before a subsequent English translation. That's all I found. I really appreciate your hard work there. And again, Dear Child by Romy Hausman, four stars. Stars, stars. stars. Andrew, do you have um, a game for us to lighten the mood? I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh -oh. I have a... As I said earlier in this episode, my brain is kind of pudding right now. So instead of a game that makes any sense as one big thing, I've made two mini games. Mini games. Like we're at Mario Party. Yay. 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 <laughs> Woo. Um, so yeah, I didn't title either of them. Deal with it. <laughs> it's called Deal With It. <laughs> so yes, I have two mini games for you today. They each take an element of the books based on books I don't really know that much about. So based on what I thought the books were about. So Brides That Revisited, super British. Our first game's about British food. Nice. Dear child has crayons on the on the cover so it's about crayola colors okay are you ready <laughs> i'm so ready let's do it 
All right, let's play a game. So here's how the first game is going to work. This is the more intense game. The, the, the Crayola game is, is very minor and can mostly be used as a tiebreaker. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, two options of British foods that are sort of strange. I want you to tell me if which one is real and beyond that, uh, what you think it is. You'll get a point if you guess the real one, but there's also a point on the line if you convince me with your description. So you can either get two points for a good description and the correct answer or one point for the wrong answer, but with a really good description. Does that make sense? It does. I I think uh, Toby should have a handicap because he has an English wife. My handicap is my own memory, which is terrible. So who wants to go first? Let me say uh, Toby. Sounds good. Rumbledy thumps or cottage sweepings? Which one's real? Cottage sweepings. All right. And what do you think that is? Cottage sweepings is um, mashed potato that has been like rolled into little balls and then fried in oil um, with like salt and pepper on top. It's just kind of like one of those crispy potato-y delicious things. Mm, that sounds good. It's incorrect. <laughs> uh, Rumbledy thumps is is the is the real point, but I do like your description of cottage sweepings because it, it 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 seemed very plausible to me. So you will get the point for your description. Yes. Congratulations. What is a rumbledy thump? A rum- I'm glad you asked. It's a traditional dish from the Scottish borders. The main ingredients are potato, cabbage, and onion. Similar to Irish Colcannon, it is served as either an accompaniment to main dish or the main dish itself. All right. All right. So one point for Toby. That's a good start. Bailey, are you ready? Yes. Here's the next option. Cork and feathers, bubble and squeak. Bubble and squeak. Yeah, I know this one. What do you think bubble and squeak is, Bailey? One thing to know about me is I like to watch videos of like people guessing what food is. And I watched one of Adele guessing British foods and that was one of them. What, really? Yeah. And there was another of like Florence Pugh doing it. (laughs) Bubble and squeak. I think it's like an egg and chicken thing or something. But like squeak is, yeah, it's an egg and chicken thing. Bailey, you're also going to get one point because you did get it correct. Bubble and squeak is the answer, but it is does not have egg and chicken in it. It is actually described as similar to rumbledy thumps. <laughs> it's cooked potato and cabbage it's um it's sometimes used in a in an english breakfast it's not a typical thing on it but you can get it at some places the regency cafe in london does a lovely bubble and squeak okay Mm -hmm. Uh, okay tie game all right toby your turn all right stargazy pie mucky dripping stargazy pie 100 percent. all right what is it uh stargazy pie i believe it is a type of bird pie um like you know the old-fashioned cook a bird in a savory pie and i that's like a real guess i'm pretty sure that's right you're pretty sure and you're still wrong however oh, no. <laughs> stargazy pie is correct that is a real oh. thing it's the most upsetting thing i've ever seen in my life oh, no. it's a fish pie and they put oh, the fish head right. sticking out of it that's and they right. look up to the sky and they haunt your dreams and i'll never be the same person i was before i learned what it was no thank you sorry to our listeners in in england in scotland in northern ireland uh in any place that maybe enjoys stargazy pie but i will never sleep again and it's your fault. But that's not real. <laughs> Dylan's showing me a picture. Is that real? No, it's I wanted it's to eat one of these so bad. I saw a documentary about making it, and it's like, oh, my God. Why are you guys always watching documentaries <laughs> about this? <laughs> but here's the thing. That one was a trick question, because mucky dripping is real, too. Uh, oh. What's that? That's, that's what comes out of you after you have stargazy pie. <laughs> Dripping, this is from Wikipedia, dripping, also known as beef dripping or more rarely pork dripping, is an animal fat product produced from the fatty or otherwise unusual parts of kid, cow or pig carcasses, uh, and mucky dripping is a Yorkshire spin on it. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So, Toby, everyone's gotten one point on all their answers. So, Toby's got two. Bailey's got one. You can really put yourself in an advantage here, Bailey, by getting two points on this. All right. Let's do it. So, here you go, Bailey. Eaton mess, Oxford sharps. I'd like to steal. I'm going to say Eaton Mess because Oxford Sharp sounds like a container where you would put needles. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to Eaton Mess and it's like it's like a sloppy Joe, but it's British. So it's like <laughs> liver instead of beef. So it's a sloppy Chester. Yeah. I'm changing the rules here. Toby, do you know what Eaton Mess is? Absolutely. It's a delicious dessert. Uh, it has like lemony custard and some jam and I believe a little bit of cream or whipped cream on top. It depends. And there might even be a little bit of pastry in there as well. It, it's kind of a regional thing, but that's it's definitely a dessert. It looks good as heck. It's so good. Oh, Eaton Mess is so good. I just think it's funny because Toby's tone when he's lying and when he's telling the truth is exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give... 
Bailey, one point for getting eaten mess correct. Uh, Toby, a half point for stealing. What? And, and Bailey, first shot at the tiebreaker. Thank you. Which is worth however many points I want because I make the rules and my brain don't work. So the rules are going to be whatever I want them to be. The, the score is two and a half points to Toby based on a, a scoring rubric that I made up as I went uh, to two points to, by Bailey. Uh, and uh, the tiebreaker is here. Nigh upon us. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. A tiebreaker for a non-existent tie. This is about Crayola colors. <laughs> Maybe you guys know that Crayola sometimes does weird colors in their big crayon sets. They give uh-huh, them weird uh-huh. names. You guys know about yes, that? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. For example, Purple Mountain's Majesty, Razzmatazz, Timberwolf, or Unmellow Yellow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I want you to just give me a, your own unique color for the next Crayola release. Tell me <laughs> the, your name what that color is and any special features like glitter or something and i'm just gonna try to stop crying (laughs) (laughs) okay um i've got one okay you Uh, you go first it's okay bailey let let the record show that bailey is foregoing her chance to go first here very very (laughs) magnanimous thank you thank you um it's a paired set of of crayons um they are the hevelin and shevelin <laughs> and they are just like two barely different skin tones of extremely pale white person <laughs> bringing it back oh. oh my gosh all right bailey this is gonna be tough to beat that's very good that's really good okay mine is called a cabin in the woods outside of stuttgart <laughs> oh no and it's like you know when you have um like a marbleized so it's like half brown and half green um like spun together so that when you color it it has both colors because brown and green are like forest colors i don't think i've ever seen a crayon like that yeah i've seen a crayon like that (laughs) let's this is taking me back let me just talk about it for a while Uh, this is the third game of the night which is i've seen a crayon like that Okay, you guys each get a point for that, which means Toby's the winner because he yes. actually knew what one of the foods was. Yes. So, thank you for playing. Thank you for the game. Well, we still have our sanity. Let's do the next portion of the podcast. It is the time when Dylan chooses books at random from our shelf to read next. It is time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Well, Toby, while it might not be a house in the woods in Stuttgart, you will still be forced to read something. <laughs> You only need to read fast to read The House of Spirits by Isabel Allende. Ooh, I am excited. I love Allende. I have not read her for a while, um, which is, I don't, you know, it's like one of those authors where you think about them and you're like, why haven't I read an Isabel Allende in a while? Um, but I'm extremely excited for this book. Amped. Awesome. And Billy. Yes. You better hurry if you're going to get this book. Okay. You might have to run before they close at midnight. You might have to run to number 71, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Ooh. Ooh. This was, Talk about a bookstagram favorite. Yes, bookstagram favorite. Really big. I think well, came out last year or the year before. Really popular. My understanding is mm-hmm. it's like a, a girl dies but then goes to a library and reads different versions of her life. Sure. So I don't know. So I'm excited. Nice. Hopefully it's about that. If it's not, we'll find out next time on the podcast. <laughs> Ooh, this is also on my list, oh, so I'll be is. reading along nice. with you. Yeah, there you go. nice, awesome. Well, that means in two weeks on the podcast, I'll be reading *The Midnight Library* by Matt Haig, and Andrew is reading *To the Lighthouse* by Virginia. *To the Lighthouse*. <laughs> <laughs> *To the Lighthouse* by Virginia Woolf. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And uh, even if you're not a member of the British aristocracy. That's okay with us. We just want you to head over uh, to iTunes or whatever your podcatcher of choice is and rate us five stars there. It helps us so much, helps people find the podcast and it lets us know that you care. And if you do actually happen to know a member of the British aristocracy and you would like to recommend our (laughs) podcast to them, that could be huge for us. But beyond that, if you just want to recommend this to a friend or someone you think would enjoy it, uh, word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. And so a recommendation from a friend is the best way for us to get some more friends to come listen to us. And we need more friends. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Darkey for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books. books.